Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Um, it's a great time of year, is it not? It's just the Christmas season is upon us. It's just a cheery time of year for many of us, and I don't want to overlook the fact that it's not always cheery for everyone. But it is, it's hard to believe it's only a week out from Christmas. Next Sunday is Christmas. I don't know about you, but this is, it's my favorite time of year. This is my absolute favorite holiday of the season. I often find myself just more cheery, light-spirited, and an upbeat mood, sort of looking forward to all the festivities of the season and, and the Christmas holiday that's upon us. At the same time, I often need to ask myself the question, what gives me the most joy during Christmas? Why am I feeling the cheeriness, the upbeat mood? What is it about the season that makes me so joyful? There are so many good things that we should enjoy about Christmas, from time with our family and our friends, from Christmas parties, going and looking at lights, hot cocoa, right? Opening presents on Christmas morning. These are all great things about Christmas, and they're all good gifts from God. Every one of them is a good gift from God that he wants us to enjoy while giving thanks to him as the gift giver. You know, James tells us in the book of James that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So every bit of good you enjoy at Christmas actually comes from God and his grace, right? We have no good apart from his grace in our lives. But at the same time, the season can also overwhelm us with all the seemingly good things that we have, right? And with God's good gift, we can be tempted to place more emphasis on the gift than the gift giver himself. It's easy to be distracted from what should bring us the most joy during Christmas. Our hearts, which the Bible tells us are inherently sinful, right, have a tendency to take something good from God and to distort it and to alter it and to turn it into something sinful or even to make it something ultimate in our life, which is not where it ought to be. We even go as far in our culture as, as fabricating stories about Christmas and the meaning of Christmas and what we should focus on and what should be most important to us during Christmas in order to add a sort of Christmas magic to the holiday season. And the irony of it all is in reality there are, there are true, non-fabricated, awe-inspiring, worship-invoking reasons to be filled with joy during Christmas. Right? And we don't have to make any of it up. It's reality. So for the next 20 minutes, what I'd like to do is to draw our hearts into these realities. What I'd like to do is to present to you Christ, the baby born in a manger, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the God-man, who existed with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past, yet who humbled himself, took on flesh, and dwelt among us, whose life was taken at Calvary, crucified by the very creatures that he himself created. It's a story that deserves our attention. It's a story that when we begin to understand it, it should grip our hearts like nothing else can. And it should fill us with amazement and joy and wonder and love this season. So let's begin. If you have your Bible in front of you, please turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Now, we know the gospel writers uh, that, that talk of the Christmas story, namely Matthew and Luke, they, they tell us that Mary gave birth to a son. Now, there's a lot more that goes with that. I'm not going to recount the events today, but we know that Mary gives birth to a son and calls his name Jesus. Now, who is this child called Jesus? That's really the most important question any one of us can answer in this life. Who is Jesus? Now, John, he was a disciple of Jesus. 
He uh, wrote a, an account of Jesus' life, his, his life, death, and resurrection in the book of the Gospel of John, which is in your New Testament. Now, John claims that the very onset of his gospel, one of the most important things we can know about Jesus, he says that Jesus is God himself. Jesus is God himself. And he existed with God in the beginning before anything was created. And not just that, he also says that he is the creating agent for all that has been created. John also refers to this Jesus as the incarnate word of God. Now, incarnate simply means to take on flesh or to take on human form. Let me read the first opening verses of the Gospel of John. He says, In the beginning was the Word. This is a reference to Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then lower in the chapter, in verse 14, he says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus... He took on flesh and he dwelt among us. So you've got to ask yourself this question. How can that be, right? Because John just said that Jesus is God, right? We know he's the second person of the Trinity. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What does it mean that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became a man? It, it means exactly that. Okay, the Bible doesn't give us the specifics on how this happened, but we know the divine nature took on a human nature at the same time. Okay, in one person of Jesus Christ, there weren't two people. It was two natures in one person in unity. The God-man, fully God and fully man. And this God-man existed in eternity past, right, with the Father and the Son and entered his own creation as a child. His birth, it was not like a human birth. It was not like a normal human birth. Humans tend to exist at conception and birth. Jesus already existed, right? So Jesus became a human. So Christmas was not a becoming for Jesus. Or excuse me, Christmas was not a beginning for Jesus. It was more of a becoming for Jesus, becoming a human. All the while, still maintaining his deity as God himself. In fact, Jesus made the stunning claim that he actually existed before Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. Okay, this was stunning because most scholars in Jesus' day and today believe Abraham was born around 2100 B.C. This is 2100 years before Jesus was born. Okay, so this claim was so offensive to the Jews of his day that they tried to stone him for blasphemy. I'll read you the account here in John 8. Now Jesus is speaking to the Jews of his day. He says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So how can this be? Jesus makes the claim here that he existed before Abraham, right? What kind of God is this? Who does this? A God who leaves his glorious throne in heaven, existing in perfect joy and happiness, and then took on the form of what he created himself. Now let's take a step back from this. Let's just let our common sense and our intuition guide us, just at this moment. This isn't a very smart thing to do most of the time, okay? But let it guide you right now. If there was a God who created a universe... Right? And he decided to enter his own creation as one of the very beings that he created himself. 
we'd have to imagine that he must have come in great glory, right? That he must have demanded honor and praise from his creation and he must have entered in the most spectacular fashion for the whole world to see. That's why the Christmas story is so unexpected. The exact opposite happens. The sovereign creator of time and space, he enters time and space by being born in a manger amongst animals because there was no room for him in the inn. We can't miss this, right? He, he, he created the universe, the world, the fullness therein, and there's no room for him in the inn. So he ends up being born in an animal's sty. He was born as, as the most helpless of beings, a baby needing to be swaddled and nursed by his mother. This is the sovereign Lord and creator of the universe. What kind of God does this? Who is this God? I'm going to keep asking that question throughout this devotion because I know this is a rhetorical question. Who is this God? But I don't want us to, to overlook this fact. We know this God. He's revealed himself on the pages of Holy Scripture, right? But I'm going to keep posing it because I want us to think about it. I want us to marvel in it. I want us to consider the wonder and the glory of this God and what he did nearly 2,000 years ago. I don't want this to be something we just brush over and overlook at Christmas because it's so easy to do most of the time with all the distractions and everything we have going on, right? Now, I've asked you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 6, please. Philippians 2, verse 6. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So this verse is often confusing because the, the emptying of himself here is not an emptying of his divine nature or qualities as God. But it refers to him emptying himself of the glory he had in the form of God in the beginning, with, in heaven. Okay, that's why it says he emptied himself. How did he do it? By taking the form of a servant. Now, J.I. Packer, he writes it this way. He explains, when Paul talks of the son as having emptied himself and become poor... What he has in mind is the laying aside, not of divine powers and attributes, but of divine glory and dignity. So Jesus, God, he set aside his divine glory and his dignity. The sovereign creator, okay, who Paul speaks of this way in Colossians 1. As I read these verses to you in Colossians 1, just picture this is the same God who came in humble form as a baby in a manger. This is the same God. Paul speaks of him this way. He says, he, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Who is this God? He stepped down from it all as a baby in a manger. Okay, let's, let's go back to our, our common sense, our intuition. So maybe Christ came in a humble way. Let's give him that. But once he grew up, right, the, the wisdom of the world would tell us he had to become great. Right? He had to become great. Maybe take a seat on an earthly throne somewhere where he could be worshipped by all of his creation or, or maybe acquire riches and wealth and live like the best life ever, humanly, worldly speaking, that could ever be lived. Right? This is fitting for a God. 
Is it not? Isn't that what a God should do? Go back to Philippians. Look at verse 7. It says, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So Jesus took the form of a servant. He spent his days on earth serving those who he created. All the while, the sovereign, the creator of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, who holds all things together, everything was made through him, for him, and ultimately for his glory, this God had no place to even lay his head. Jesus says as much in Matthew 8. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. As if that wasn't enough, this same God-man was found to be washing the feet of his disciples the night before he was crucified, washing the feet of those whom he created. What kind of God is this? Who does this? Once again, our intuition would tell us, okay, so maybe he entered his creation in a humble way. Maybe he took the form of a servant. But there's no way the God-man, Jesus, stayed long enough on earth to encounter the one thing that is the most feared aspect of what it means to be human. Right? We know what that is. Death. Death. And if he did die, well, maybe he died in a spectacular fashion, one in a, in a way that maybe we want to imitate someday. Right? That's, that's sort of fitting for a God. Look at Philippians 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. So not only did he die, yes, he died, but he died in the most horrendous way humanly imaginable. Our God, our sovereign creator, sustainer of all things, all things hold together through him, hanging there, bleeding on a cross, dead. What kind of God is this? Who does this? From the view of an outsider, none of this makes any sense, right? The world's understanding of who God is supposed to be was completely flipped on its head that first Christmas. This is one of the reasons why I'm personally convinced the Bible is true. Because who could have, who could have made up something like this? Right? This isn't the definition of the pagan gods of Jesus' day. No one knows a God like this. This is totally unique. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 1.27. He says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God's wisdom, it's not the wisdom of the world. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. So this then brings us to the most crucial question. Why? Why did he do it? We know he didn't have to do it. On the night before Christ was crucified, he, he said he could have called down legions of angels to, to save him from his enemies. But he didn't do it. Why? Was it simply to show that the Creator can become a creature? I mean, that's, that's amazing in itself, right? That's, that's, wow, how did it happen? We don't even understand that. Is there more to it than that? Why, as one theologian put it, did Jesus lay aside his glory voluntarily restrain his power and acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill-treatment, malice, misunderstanding. Finally, a death that involves such agony, even more, than, even more phys- spiritual than physical, that his mind nearly broke under the prospect of it. Why did he do it? 
To answer that question, we need to listen to what Jesus, the God-man, the sovereign creator, the Jewish Messiah, said about why he came. Jesus says this in John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then Jesus also says in Mark 10, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, he came in humble form, in a manger, lived a humble life, with no place to even rest his head. He died a horrible, excruciating death to save sinners like us. To save sinners like us. Why? Because we, as Isaiah says in 53, we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone, we have turned to his own way. And because of our rebellion, our sin, there's a rift that exists between us and God. There's a rift that exists between God's creatures and the Creator. There's a separation. And this divide was removed through the shedding of the second person of the Trinity's blood. So God himself paid our debt. God himself was crucified in our place. God himself saves us from his righteous wrath and condemnation under his righteous law. So God saves us from God. God God the Father and his righteous wrath was appeased. It was exhausted. It was propitiated through the death of God the Son. Okay, so God saves us from God. Isaiah goes on. He says, The Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Peter explains it this way. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, this is referring to Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's us, that he might bring us to God. And then Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians, For our sake he made him, this is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So a great exchange happened, right? God grants us righteousness, an alien righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ, and God lays on him our sin. And through the exchange, we are brought to God. That's a beautiful way of describing it that that Peter, right? We are brought to God. Relationship restored, sins forgiven, no condemnation. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you this this morning. Are you in Christ Jesus? Have you embraced Christ Jesus through faith? That's how we become in Christ. We embrace him through faith. If you answer yes to that, there is no condemnation for you. None. This is the joy of Christmas. The fact that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We've been acquitted. We've been redeemed. We've been restored. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of God. This is the joy of Christmas. And the same God, the Jewish Messiah, the sovereign creator, the sustainer of the universe, this Jesus, he commands all people everywhere to repent for sin and trust in him. Acts 17 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You might have the question, how can I be saved? How can I accept the free gift of God? Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth 
that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So who is this God? Who is this God? He's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is a God who entered his own creation, became a creature himself to seek and save the lost by offering himself up for the forgiveness of our sins. The God who humbles himself by taking the form of a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did this. We can't miss this part. We did this. He did this for our sake. He did it for your sake. This is the heart of the Christmas story. Okay, the, the fact that God became man that first Christmas, it should grip your heart like nothing else can during the season. The fact that God ultimately went to the cross to secure our pardon. What better reason do we have to be filled with wonder and joy and hope this Christmas? What better reason is out there? Nothing even comes close. I like to call the music team forward. Um, and I want to end on this. This is just a description of Christmas by J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. He says this, It is here, in the thing that happened at the first Christmas, that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The Word became flesh. God became man. The Divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was, there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as in the truth of the Incarnation.